Morning, everybody. I'm going to pray before we um, look at uh, God's word. Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be filled. Well, this is a prayer about me, but it may resonate with others that um, I'm often quite full enough when I come to church. Life is good, and um, it's just rather nice to be topped up here. Um, But I ask you that you will give each of us today a hunger and a thirst. It's not something we can generate ourselves, but it is something that you can give to us. Give us a hunger, a dissatisfaction, until we've known more of you. And speak to us now as we uh, look into your word, we pray. Amen. Well, this morning we're carrying on in our journey to the promised land and we move from Genesis to Exodus. And that's not just a little page break in the um, uh, Bible. There's more significance there because we move from the story of a family to the story of a nation. The story of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, who was renamed Israel, you remember, through to the people of Israel, the Israelites. You know how many um, times the Israelites are mentioned in Genesis? Three. One of those in the transition paragraph at the end of Genesis to say, get ready, here comes a nation. How many times mentioned in Exodus? 120. It's the main story. And it's very easy for us as we think about, okay, I know in the Bible there's Abraham, there's Isaac, there's Jacob, there's Moses, and then there's the promised land. To forget that there's a huge gap in terms of time between Jacob and Moses. Let's get into some historical statistics. There are 75 of Jacob's family, let's call him Israel because that helps us to make that transition. There's 75 people who go down into Egypt because that's where there is food. We know that from Genesis chapter 46. 600,000 come out. We know that from Exodus chapter 12. Now the Bible refers elsewhere to the Israelites being in Egypt for 430 years. I don't want to get controversial here, but there's good grounds for believing that the text actually says they were in Canaan and in Egypt for 430 years. See me afterwards if you'd like to have a, you know, an, an, an after class in that. We also know from other uh, statistics that there are hidden in the Bible um, uh, that 215 of those years were spent between Abraham entering Canaan and Joseph bringing his brothers and sisters down uh, into uh, the promised land, into Egypt rather. And another 215 years while they were in Egypt. Now just think about the statistics. God had promised, God had promised uh, that Abraham would be the father of a great nation. For 215 years, he and his wife were responsible for 75 people 
That's all the population that there had been in those 215 years. In the next 215 years, the number mushroomed to 600,000. Now, how can this be? Is this another Bible miracle or can we explain it? The secret is that the land of Egypt was a good place to be fertile and multiply. And we know that, that the climate, the political security and the abundance of food were such that there was a population explosion. Now, I love then to think, okay, so how could you get from 75 to to 600,000 in just 215 years? This is how it's done. It's not actually in the Bible, but um, I was asked to explain it. Okay. Half of the 75 people were women. 37 and a half, but we'll round it down to 37. Each of them bore four children, two of whom were girls and two were boys. And by the time that those girls were 18, they had borne another two boys and two girls. And so on and so forth for 12 generations. 12 times 18 is 214, so we've got a year's spare in all this, okay? And if you look at that little uh, sum there, and you put it through a calculator or computer, how many do you get at the end of 215 years? Steve, let's see it. 606,208. Easy. Didn't require a miracle for that to happen. It may not have been quite as smooth as that, of course, we know. But that's how the time in Egypt was a time of fertility in more respects than one. Now the people of Israel, as they were called, Jacob's new name, the Israelites, lived in the land of Goshen. And we know where Goshen was. So if you can imagine Egypt um, uh, um, uh, bordering on the Mediterranean, the Nile Delta, a very fertile place, the land of Goshen is towards the east. A very logical place for it to be, given that um, the, uh, the, Canaan, the, the people had come from Canaan, which was just further to the east. It would be the first stopping place in the then populated uh, country of Egypt. Now, it was a fertile place, but it was not just a quiet baby-making factory. It wasn't like uh, a peaceful forerunner of Hobbit Town. Exodus 1 records the reaction of the resident population to these burgeoning immigrants. They challenged their cultural identity, and they were a security risk. Does this sound familiar to you? Too many immigrants, and not enough identification with the culture of Egypt. They all lived in one area. It was a ghetto. And what happened then? Well, the Egyptians decided they had to do something to control things. They started by making life a little uncomfortable for them, perhaps in the hope that they would then say, maybe we shouldn't have come here. Maybe life wasn't so bad in Canaan after all. We'll go back there. And then, that didn't work. They kept on multiplying like rabbits. And so therefore, the next turning of the screw, they have to do their forced labour, making their own bricks without straw. Really hard. Does that control birth? No, it doesn't. 
So then we come to the most radical form of birth control, infanticide. All the young boys were to be killed at birth. And that didn't work. Look at this verse from Exodus chapter 1. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. Let's dwell on that word. This was the mighty nation of Egypt. And they weren't just annoyed with the Israelites, they came to dread them. They came to see them as a threat. And so they worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labour in brick and mortar, with all kinds of work in the fields. And it's into this setting that comes the hero of the story, Moses. And we're going to be with Moses all the way through to the Promised Land. So get used to the name of that word. That, that word. And Exodus 2 gives us the details of his birth, of his abandonment, of his rescue, of his upbringing as a privileged Egyptian. But we're not going to dwell on these today. Just to say that it all makes sense later on in the story of Moses. Exodus chapter 2 also gives us some information about his moment of madness. He kills an Egyptian guard in broad daylight and he has to leave Egypt in a hurry to escape certain death. And where did he flee? Well, he went to the nearest place where he thought he would be safe, which was to the east of Goshen, out into what we now call the Sinai Peninsula. And the text tells us in Exodus chapter 2 uh, that he had gone to the, it's called the land of Midian. Now we might think of land of Midian, okay, where's the capital, where are the main centres of population and the like. That over-eggs the nature of Midian. The Midianites were nomadic camel drivers. They moved from one waterhole to another in what was, as it is today, nothing but desert. It wasn't a nation, it was just a wasteland that only the nomads were interested in. And in Exodus 2, it says, Moses, who it describes in the text as an Egyptian, Moses is accepted into the family of Jethro, a nomad who had great spiritual powers. Interesting little sideline. Some of you will know that there is a, a, a religion or a group of people called the Druze today, um, still around in um, the Middle East. And the Druze revere Jethro as one of their greatest prophets. But that's by the by. He marries one of his daughters, uh, of Jethro's daughters, and he gets work herding sheep. Now we're just coming to our story which Graham is going to read from Exodus chapter 3 but just think for a moment how Moses is feeling after his stellar rise in the royal household of Egypt of the pharaohs and here he is in the wilderness herding sheep the lowliest of jobs. Graham. While Graham walks, if you've got a Bible or would like a Bible, it's Exodus chapter 3 we're going to be re reading from. You can find it on page 59. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, 
the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you, has sent me to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Graham. So here's Moses, the sheep herder, taking his flock deep into the desert. That of itself is significant. They'd only go deep into the desert if he was still looking for food or water. And it says he goes deep into the desert. Um, and it's there um, that he comes to Horeb, the mountain of God. For those of you a little confused, Horeb is uh, another name for Sinai. So if you think, why Horeb and why Sinai? The two are the same. Don't ask me why. Uh, we don't know where Horeb was, but uh, we have some sort of idea there. Can you see that on the, uh, yeah, on the screen? It's uh, quite deep into um, uh, that uh, Sinai Peninsula. 
There are some uh, scholars that think it could well be also on the other side of the Sea of Aqaba. Um, but suffice it to say, it's in deep country, it's in deep desert. Um, it's where uh, in the early Christians in about 300 AD uh, reckoned that they knew where the site was and they built St. Catherine's Monastery, which is still around today. So you get some idea there of the holy place that there was uh, for uh, the early Christians as well as for the um, uh, Israelites and the Jews. And it's still a World Heritage Site, that place, of course, in a very troubled part of the world. And his attention is caught by a bush that appears to be uh, on fire but not yet burned up. Burning but not consumed. Now, we don't know. We could spend quite a long time um, deciding on why it was a burning bush and what its symbolism was. It could simply be a means of gathering Moses' attention. No more than that. There are some churches historically that have seen it as more than that and have used it as their symbol. The Church of Scotland, stand up all the Scots, Church of Scotland has it there right in the middle. Thank you very much, saw that. Uh, has it uh, right in their emblem, the burning bush, and there in Gaelic it says, burning but not consumed, signifying God as the one who is all-powerful, all energy, and yet never comes to an end. And once he has Moses' attention, God then takes him into his confidence. He says, I've seen the pain of the Israelites. I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to take them out of captivity, and I'm going to bring them to um, the most perfect place to live. So far, so good. And then there's the word, so which doesn't seem to make sense, because if God's going to do that, it's very nice of him to tell Moses, but would he please get on with it? What does he say? So, now, go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Whoops. Now, we shall look next week at how Moses reacted. Liz is going to take us through that, so we're not going to focus on that. But before he starts making his excuses, Moses asks two points of clarification. Quite reasonable questions. Question one, why choose me? Now remember how Moses was after he had got to this very low place. He had been a great big star with a huge future in Egypt. He became a refugee living in a foreign country. He then was not a particularly successful shepherd by all accounts and had to go deep in the country to look for food for the sheep. Why choose me? It's a reasonable question. And what does God say? Well, God doesn't say, because I see you've got real star potential. He doesn't say, because I recognize that you've been trained in things in Egypt which I can use. He simply says, I will be with you. And then there's the second question, what is your name? See how God describes himself in the uh, opening uh, verses? He says, I am the God of your father, not your fathers, I am the God of your father, and the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. A description of what he has done 
not a description of who he is. And Moses, perhaps quite wisely, thinks he's going to need a little bit more authentication than that if he's going to go back to the people of Israel and tell them that he's got instructions from the divine being. So he says, what is your name? Now to us, that's quite an innocent and a reasonable uh, uh, question. You know, you meet somebody and you, unless they're wearing labels, I don't think God was in those days, but, it, uh, but you just say, what is your name? Because your name tells you a bit about the person. In Old Testament times, to know the name of someone ha- gave you some sort of control over that person. Not in a way that you could actually demand of them that you would do this and that, but it somehow contained them uh, within a framework. So you knew what the limits of the person were. And what does God say? I am. He doesn't even say that. The, uh, the Hebrew word for what he says is Y-W-H-W. No, Y H Y. W. Yahweh. Yahweh. That's how people pronounce it because it was unpronounceable and it was intended not to be used as the holy name when you were actually speaking out. I don't know how God communicated that because he had to say something, but, but it was an unpronounceable name and it literally just means I am. Indescribable. Who are you? I'm indescribable. I am, I'm life, I'm presence, I'm all that is. That's what he says to Moses. Now let's stand back from the text and ask ourselves, what can I learn from this beyond the historical facts? For we believe, as Paul uh, says in Timothy chapter, uh, 2 Timothy letter, all scripture is God-breathed, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So it's not enough for us to be fascinated by this as a historical lesson. It's got to speak to us. And that's why I prayed at the beginning that God would give us a hunger. And he wants to give, I want him to give me a hunger too, to say, why this text? Why would I bother to put this down in Holy Scripture? because he wants to communicate with us. Now, this is for you to say, okay, what do I draw from that, apart from the interesting historical facts? It could be, it could be, the why me question. Feeling low in self-esteem, feeling pretty modest in what I've got to offer, and God saying, Saying what? Saying, because I'm with you. Your worth comes from who God is, not from what you've created yourself. It could be that picture of the burning bush. The God we serve is full of inexhaustible energy and fire as we draw close to him, so that energy is transferred to us. And we need that message because we're feeling at our wit's end. We're feeling exhausted. We've got responsibilities and we think, how can I go on? And the answer is, the inexhaustible supply of God is with us. Lo, I am going with you. It could be the description of God as I am, above all, timeless, 
ever-present, beyond description, boundless, and on our side. So we look at what's going on in the world and we think, you know, we're a diminishing, under-resourced, um, incapable group who just carry the lamp of belief in spite of all that's going on. And then we remember that God is above all that. He's not overawed by the chaos that there is in the world because he is boundless. He is the inspiration. It could be any of those things. It could be something else. I'll tell you what it is for me. It is that God plays a very long game in working out his purposes. And it's not always, indeed, rarely a straight line of where God is taking us. It'll take us on all sorts of detours which we think are irrelevant or times of wasted opportunity. And at any point we may ask, and some of you may be asking today, where is God in all this? Where is he in all this? Think of the Israelites in Egypt. Only generations after would they see that Egypt was necessary because it gave them the conditions to become numerically strong. It wouldn't have happened in the barren land of Canaan. Think of Moses, separated from kith and kin in the Egyptian royal household. Only years later would he see that the skills that he learned there would be valuable in becoming a leader of his people in a very difficult circumstance. Only years after would he realise that learning how to write, which was a skill not known by many, but known by the Egyptians, that he would be able to write down the laws of Moses, as we call them, and to write the, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. And Moses again, being hung out to dry in the desert as a nomadic sheep herder, only when he was there would he realise that God wanted him there so that he could speak to him. And the wilderness, if some of you are in it, is not a bad place to be because it's where God meets you. It's where he met David as the shepherd boy. It's where he met Jesus. Jesus was sent out into the wilderness to be tempted, but he came back a stronger person. It's where St. Paul, this is a little known fact, but where St. Paul went after he had had the encounter on the Damascus Road. Spent two years in the wilderness of Arabia. So the wilderness is not the end of the story. It's part of the training. And that prompts me also to ask what experiences have I had in the past? What friendships, what dark periods, what testing times that I can look on with gratitude now, recognising that I'm more able to do what God wants me to do today as a result of what happened then. And some I can see. I can see things that have happened to me and I can see the end of the story, as it were, that how God has used that. But there are other things which are still a mystery, still uncertain. Why would God have done that for me? And I need to ask God... Is this an experience that you've given to me to use now? All of us have had them, and all of us can use them. And I'm going to end uh, with a picture in a moment, not just now, a picture. Um, but a few years ago, uh, Pam and I bought a tree in Not Cuts. Do you remember Not Cuts? You know, it's now where you can buy a coffee. Um, 
we bought a tree. It was uh, a delightful tree. It's called a pseudacacia. Those of you who know about these things, wonderful yellow leaves on it. And we planted it, and for five years, each year, a bit of it died. And so in the end, we decided to uh, replace it, and we got another tree, which is a very fine tree. But rather than throw the tree away or put it on the uh, uh, bonfire, I decided just to dump it in the ground just a few feet, literally a few feet away from where it was. Look at it now. And the illustration for me that that speaks of is that where God moves us to another place, we may blossom in a way we've never blossomed in where we are at the moment. And that may be a picture for you. It may be that God is saying to you, making you feel uneasy about doing something different. You say, but why me? I can't do that. I will be with you. And if we take the step, then we find that that's where fruitfulness comes in a way that it wouldn't come if we stayed in the place where we're safe. So maybe there's something going on in you and God is just keeping you awkward and you say, this absolutely doesn't make sense. Maybe God wants to move you to a place where you will blossom in a way you could never imagine. We're going to, I'm going to ask the music group to come up and we're going to remain seated as we ask God to speak to us today to speak to us personally. And if we don't feel hungry, just ask for him to give you a hunger because he'll only give you a hunger in order to feed you, not to make you feel hungry. So just a few moments of silence where we just uh, reflect on that and then I'll ask Kirsty to uh, strike up the music. <laughs>